So we are back for another episode of the Rethink <laughs> Podcast with the King Center. My name is Cameron Friend. My name is Ferris Watkins. And we are here to have critical <laughs> conversations about things that affect you on a daily basis. We want to rethink the issues that are facing our world every single day. And yeah, Ferris, yeah. I don't know about you, <laughs> but I am uber excited, excited for this conversation we're about to have. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you don't really get an opportunity to pick brains like this every yeah. so often, you know? yeah. A whiz. Yeah, whiz. Exactly. That's that's exactly what's about to happen right here. So we have the one and only Dr. Khalil Muhammad, and we are about to have an amazing conversation about a litany of things yeah. pertaining to race, the penal system. Apparently, yeah. we're gonna talk some movies too. But I don't know about you. I'm yeah. a big moviologist. So I love love to talk about films. I mean, so this gonna be great. Did we just talk about a movie? Yeah, I feel like we just did. I feel like we yeah. just did. So again, just to give give a quick bio on exactly who the person is we're speaking to today. Mm-hmm. Uh, McAleel is the Ford Foundation Professor of History, Race and Public Policy at Harvard Kennedy School. Mm-hmm. He directs the Institutional Anti-Racism and Accountability Project and is the former director of the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture, a division of the New York Public Library and the world's <laughs> leading library and archive of global black history. Before leading the Schomburg School or center rather Khalil was an associate professor at Indiana University right. so accolades we about to do credentials it. we about to do it <laughs> thank you right, thank so you there's a rumor that you from south side Chicago is right. that true <laughs> that is true that's right big ups to the south side of Chicago Absolutely. yeah yeah what was that like what was it like growing up oh man so you know I, I had a what I consider a pretty perfect childhood uh, the South Side um, is one of the blackest parts of America mm-hmm. and also a, um, a stronghold of, of powerful black political leaders, yeah, you know, yeah. place that sent the first African-American mm-hmm. to Congress after Reconstruction in the early 1920s. And then, of course, we got the first black woman, Senator Carol Mosley Braun in the 1990s, and none other than uh, Senator Obama, later mm. President Obama. Jesse Jackson um, mm-hmm. lived his entire life in the neighborhood that I grew up in. Of course, uh, acolyte of Dr. King um, and my own family roots with the Nation of Islam was headquartered in Hyde Park. Uh, it's, it was a great place. And uh, I have very fond memories of my childhood. What what part of your childhood, no, child- what yeah. part of your childhood like really um, kind of shaped you who, into who you are now? Well, of course, as is true for most people, my parents played a huge role in, in, in making me into the person I am today. My mom was a career educator, spent 35 years uh, with the Chicago Public Schools, about 15 of those years in the classroom teaching elementary uh, English and, uh, and later as an administrator. My father is a Pulitzer Prize winning photographer, uh, wow. spent 25 years um, at the New York Times where he finished his career, but started at Ebony and Jet Publishing. So I had these incredible parents who, you know, were models of of people who cared deeply about Black people, who cared about the world, who were totally invested in in everything that matters to the society we live in. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, so I mean, even with that, uh, again, just pointing back to the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., even the Chicago Freedom Project, uh, a lot of people just Mm -hmm. aren't aware of the the work, yeah. uh, but even really the maybe the depth of racism and infrastructural racism that they ran into in Chicago. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's a, a major history, obviously, with the Chicago fires and everything else. So uh, there's just so much history that we could really be learning from yeah. from the city, uh, from the triumphs and also the hardships that 
that Chicago mm-hmm. has had to overcome over the years, you know, so I grew up playing basketball and, you know, grew up playing sports my whole life. So I heard about Chicago and all the <laughs> athletes that came out from Jordan and Derrick yeah. Rose and all these other people, Anthony Davis and everything else. So it has a great legacy to that city. Yeah. 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 I, I, I I'm a little older, of course. So my um, childhood <laughs> was literally shaped by, by Jordan. Um, I mean, I went to Bulls games. I mean, uh, when the Bulls were the worst team in the league mm-hmm. and saw you know, Jordan's triumph and domination over the game, uh, it all occurred between my teenage years and early adult years, just pretty incredible on that point alone. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. So so let's talk about, let's really get into um, your formative like years. Um, let's go through um, your, your childhood and then going into high school, college. What, what was that like? Yes. Yeah, so, so I was an only child. Um, uh, my uh, parents divorced pretty young uh, at three. Mm-hmm. And the, the miracle uh, is that they managed to basically be best friends. Uh, wow. in spite same. of same. Uh, same. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so while, you know, statistically uh, in, in the language of uh, family values in this country, people would say I came from a broken home. It was far from it. Um, the most important thing was that my parents centered me uh, as the most important uh, thing in their lives, or think per- mm-hmm. most important uh, person in their lives. Yeah. And uh, and so I had kind of the best of both worlds. I you know I had everything that one could hope from a mother who cared about me and provided for me. Um, I had a big extended family. My father was one of uh, 10 siblings. Uh, so Same. I had plenty of first. <laughs> My dad is the oldest of 10. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's funny. Uh, I think my father's the second oldest. Um, uh. So I had all a ton of first cousins. I was mm. never uh, wanting for company. Um, and so when I say best of both worlds, it's kind of like, you know, I always got the big piece of chicken at home. Uh, but then I had all the company that I could ever desire with my cousins when I was at their place. And, uh, and my mother, because she was an educator, you know, really, um, made sure to teach me how to read pretty early. And so I was one of these kids who got an early start. I, and I actually skipped kindergarten, like if that's a thing, but (laughs) so, you know, uh, when, when it was time to go to kindergarten, um, my mother convinced the school, my neighborhood school that I was, um, I was able to read and she's like, why, why would he waste his time in kindergarten? He already knows how to read. Let's put it in first grade. Mm. Um, The funny story about even that is before I went to this school called Arthur Dixon, which was a neighborhood school in Chatham, uh, which Mm. is kind of a middle-class black neighborhood on the South side. My mother, who was part of a first generation of black teachers to desegregate schools. So she came out with her degree uh, in a teacher certification and and, and bachelor's degree in education in about 1971 or so, 1972, just about when I was born, that's my birth year. And uh, a lot of black teachers were being sent to all white or predominantly white schools on the north side of Chicago, which is, you know, historically the segregated or just dividing line between north and south. She made a deal with the principal to send to take me there with her because she was traveling about an hour away and she figured like just in terms of pick up and drop off, it'd be easier if her kid was with her. Principal said, okay. Within a day of my arrival at this all white school, the parents organized led by a firefighter who basically said this kid, this black kid doesn't belong in this school. He doesn't live in our neighborhood and he needs to leave. And they went to the principal and said, correct your mistake. Wow. So 
<laughs> the principal was like, well, Kim, my mother's name, uh, Khalil's not going to be able to go to school here. You know, in a way, I tell that story in part because it was it was a blessing in disguise for me, because that meant that instead of being this only black kid in a predominantly white school with white people hating on me and me building some sense of insecurity uh, mm -hmm. around like trying to fit in with people who didn't want me around. I was steeped in my own community. I had amazing friends. I had amazing black teachers. And, uh, and so as a, as a result, uh, for me, my education was incredible and I'm grateful for it. And I'm grateful for the fact that, you know, despite what happened with that, that, uh, that moment with this white school, my mother continued to make sure that I got the best education possible. That'll preach. Well, first off, yeah, he preaches. <laughs> Look, and you preaching to the choir. Though. So number one, uh, you just talked about a dynamic that yeah. is so significant. And I, especially for mm -hmm. so many black scholars, especially, but really yeah. just for black and brown American children that are having to go to the academic system here, whether it be public and or private. Honestly, in some cases, it's mm -hmm. worse in private institutions, particularly, you know, if you're going to predominantly Christian institutions, which are predominantly white institutions, obviously the burden mm -hmm. after, you know, Brown versus the Board of Education and all that. So we can get into that all later. Mm -hmm. But I was also a graduate of, of a Catholic high school, predominant white school. So, and then mm -hmm. I also then went mm -hmm. to PWI and played football, then went to, to Baylor University, again, another PWI. Mm -hmm. And I saw from your resume mm -hmm. uh, that you also attended Penn. Uh, then you went to Rutgers after yep. that as well. So yep. can you give us some insight? What was your experience like going from being raised around other people of color, other black people when you were in Chicago to then transitioning to these institutions and being essentially one of the lone black voices. And then tell us about your experience as a student, but also then as a, as a professor yeah, and educator. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So so I went to Penn, I started in 1989, uh, which it doesn't sound like much, but it actually, and this is really relevant to, uh, to the King Center and the legacy of Dr. King. It was really the first year that colleges and universities for the first time were celebrating Dr. King's holiday. Mm -hmm. uh, because as you know, the long, long fought struggle to pass the bill, making it a federal holiday, right. finally meant that by the late 1980s, institutions around the country, especially educational institutions, were starting to take the day off and turn it into a thing. Okay. So when I arrived at the University of Pennsylvania in 1989, they were doing like diversity orientation, um, you know, everybody was coming together to learn about microaggressions. They didn't call them that at the time, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, but it was very much part of the moment um, when affirmative action had sort of produced this generational cohort of Black students going to predominantly white institutions and right. Ivy League institutions. Right. I mean, most of these places, you know, had very few Black people until the late, sep uh, mm. the late, the late 60s, 70s, and into the 1980s. Exactly. So, um, at Penn, I was um, quickly uh, sort of aware of my minority status as one of 500 Black students on a campus wow. of 10,000 students um, in, in the undergraduate population. And uh, while I pledged, I pledged Kappa, Alpha okay. Psi, Fraternity Incorporated, the greatest fraternity ever, <laughs> ever to be established. Um, and so I did that freshman year and I, you know, I had a, a community of brotherhood and, and the black community was really strong. Yeah. There was a lot of hostility on that campus and a lot of ways in which for me, for the first time, I had a much more keen awareness of how, how much racism 
was part of the American experience. I mean, again, I've grown up a little bit in a cocoon, partly because it was mostly Black South Side, but also because Hyde Park, which is a neighborhood that I spent half my childhood growing up in, was integrated. And, you know, it was mostly liberal whites. Uh, my best friend is a Jewish kid and we grew up together. You know, now we have this new podcast. Some of my best friends are. Um, but it was at Penn that I really learned how much institutional racism actually existed and got involved in protest activity, was really disturbed by some of the commentary among white writers for the student newspaper about how black students didn't belong at Penn, how there was a dirty little secret that the affirmative action policies of the university were admitting students who weren't qualified to be there, mm -hmm. uh, was subjected to egg throwing, racial taunts. Mm -hmm. My girlfriend, who was a member of the Delta sorority, uh, was subject to a racial epithet, uh, and that led to a whole debate about free speech and the protected speech of even white students being able to say things to black students, including black women. It was a mess at certain times, uh, but it, it ultimately shaped me into somebody who thought I was going to be kind of a business person and make a lot of money on Wall Street to somebody okay. who wanted to go to grad school and try to figure out how all this had come to be. Mm -hmm. Wow. So what about what about your experience as a teacher? Like you, you saw it from the student perspective. How did it yeah. kind of switch when you became a professor? Yeah, yeah. So the in-between, sort of the, the leap between being an undergrad and, and then becoming a professor was that, of course, for, for my generation, Rodney King beating in 1991 mm. um, was this turning point in my own self-awareness. Uh, in addition to everything that had been going on campus, this was like a tipping point in my consciousness about how policing in particular, as part of a, a you know, set of systemic racist problems, were shaping my generation. And uh, yeah. when, when that happened, it was kind of a Trayvon Martin moment for my generation or the killing of Emmett Till had been for Dr. King's generation mm -hmm. and John Lewis and folks like that. Mm -hmm. So when I decided to go to grad school, it was because of Rodney King and later the OJ Simpson trial that I mm -hmm. became invested in trying to understand the criminal justice system and trying to figure out for myself, what did it mean to understand how racism in the system worked outside of the South, because, you know, so much of what I'd learned in college had to do with chain gangs and convict leasing and, and places like Birmingham, Alabama, you know, or parts of Georgia or Mississippi. But I didn't learn that much about Chicago or Philadelphia or New York. Yeah. And uh, and so that's what I studied. And then, of course, getting my first job and teaching and writing a book, I really became keenly aware of how much students really didn't um, have any awareness from high school, myself included. Mm -hmm. So it became a kind of passion of mine to make sure that the histories I was teaching in school would, in a way, correct for the absences and the whitewashing of history wow. that had been uh, representative of my own experience. Now, you see what's so fascinating about this, something that, that uh, Khalil, you brought up earlier was even just the importance of being around people who are like you and who mm -hmm. have similar experiences and being educated um, by people who have a similar legacy and ancestry. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the importance of having HBCUs. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you are a graduate of the right. one and only Spellman, <laughs> and there's a legacy that's attached to that. Yeah. Uh, but I think something that is happening, obviously, now in the education system with everything happening with CRT and, you know, in a lot of uh, conservative states and trying mm -hmm. to eradicate uh, the importance of Black storytelling, the importance of Black and American history as a whole, it, it symbolizes that higher institutions of learning 
are having to really make yeah. major decisions yeah. about what is important and how do we make sure we're integrating important critical materials, not just for mm -hmm. understanding who we've been, but also yeah. really the way forward and having those critical conversations. So that is, that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I also don't want to yeah. brush over the fact, I was just listening to a podcast, well, not a podcast, but a I guess a teaching by, by T.D. Jakes. And he was saying, if you ever want to find out what your passion is, it's that thing that like doesn't let you rest, wow. that, yeah. that, that makes hmm. you be like, no, this has to change, right? Mm -hmm. That was the spirit mm -hmm. of my uncle and Mel. That was the spirit of John Lewis. That was the spirit of so many of the heroes that, mm -hmm. we, um, mm -hmm. uh, that we believe in, you know, that changed uh, our reality. Mm -hmm. That is the same spirit yeah. that you have, right? Mm -hmm. You, you, you yeah. said yeah. you were going to be on Wall Street, right? Mm -hmm. But it was something yeah. about yeah. that moment. It was something about those experiences that you had and or did not have yeah. that changed your trajectory and changed the lives of so many people that you have impacted. So yeah. I, I just had to, I didn't yeah. want to brush over that fact. Yeah. That's <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I mean, I, I tell this story uh, every now and then. Um, when I was a first year grad student, I was writing a paper about Ida B. Wells, who was the famous anti-lynching activist, right, as you right, both know. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was writing about her as a Black woman, um, as a kind of trailblazer, and someone who, of course, was overlooked as well, and mm -hmm. had become tar a target of another kind of backlash in mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. the late uh, 19th century, you know, so we're talking about critical race theory backlash today or the Southern yeah. strategy in the 1970s. Well, Ida yeah. B. Wells was literally run out of Memphis, Tennessee, exactly. one step ahead of a lynch mob and ended up in Chicago, <laughs> my home, my hometown. Yep. <laughs> so I was I was writing and learning about her for the first time and talk about passion. I, I, I literally dreamt that I met her. We had a whole conversation and woke up and finished the wow. paper. I mean, I'll never forget it to this day. So, you know, when you start dreaming about your work, when, when historical figures come to life in your imagination, then you know that you have a calling for, for this kind of work. And that's, that's certainly how I felt yeah. about it. That makes my spirit happy. Yeah, and I think too, especially this podcast is geared towards millennials and, and Gen Z, you know, and then obviously our generation and the generation even, well, that you're a part of. Yeah. yeah. The things that we have witnessed, even just obviously since Rodney King, but Trayvon Martin in 2012, you know, Flannel yeah. Castile, uh, Alton Sterling and Terrence Crutcher in 2016, mm -hmm. Sandra Bland 2015, then you make mm -hmm. it all the way up to 2020, yeah. uh, then you get to the Ahmaud Arbery, you get to the Breonna Taylor, Rayshard you get to the Brooks. George Floyd, yeah. you get to the Rayshard yeah. Brooks, um, and the yeah. Kenneth Ross Jr you name it so these yep. have been defining things for all of us yeah. and i think the important thing that the Khalil's brought up that you have shared mm -hmm. is just that these moments are critical for your formation and it, so if you do is, feel a yeah. call to be one right. to to bring answers to this to at least try to solve these problems and this is mm -hmm. your opportunity to yeah. to say yes to it the same way that you did and even make that, a pivot in your yeah, own yeah. destiny so that's yeah, exceptional yeah. yeah i used to yeah yeah, Cameron, yeah yeah no no go, you go ahead go ahead no go ahead go ahead go ahead no, no, I want to hear from you guys. This is a conversation. <laughs> no, no, yeah, I, go ahead. I used to struggle with like finding my passion, finding my purpose. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm sure, you know, everyone has, right? Like you, not mm -hmm. everybody wakes up saying like, I want to change the world, mm -hmm. you know? Um, yeah. Not everybody is has the, the spirit of a Martin yeah. Luther King Jr. And so nobody's yeah. expecting that from everybody. And I feel like a lot of people right. feel as though, unless you know our Beyonce or unless you have done like the big thing, then you're not, you know, making an impact or you're, you haven't really made it in the mm -hmm. world and that's not it whatever that yearning whatever that um whatever speaks to you even if it's the smallest thing mm -hmm. even if it's like hey like I, I just want to pick up trash on the side of the road yeah. like that helps mm -hmm. the community um so I think that that is so important to highlight um the fact that what you went through changed the trajectory of so many lives and in, in your life as well 
Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I say to young people all the time that, uh, you know, the ingredient to success, you know, starts with passion, mm -hmm. starts with determination, starts with uh, vision, and then you've got to add in a little bit of luck uh, and privilege because sometimes you can have the passion, you can put in the work, you can have the vision, but if you don't have the access and you don't have the opportunities, it doesn't come true. Yeah. But yeah. if you control what you can control, mm -hmm. you'll at least find joy in being able to express yourself. I mean, all of us have talents that uh, need yeah. to be cultivated. And my particular talent, it turned out, was really to be able to sort of talk about and translate and teach others about the past. Uh, I'm grateful that I got, I've gotten to do it. And this is a great lean in. Yep. If you haven't already, <laughs> drum major instinct. King uh, has talked about this for a real long time. Drum major, finding, yes. finding that drum major instinct for your yep. life. Don't never let nobody shortchange your gift or your passion yes, and your so. skill. But anyway, yep. we're going to move on to the next yeah, question. Yeah. We're about, we about to preach a message. We're about to preach a message today. I, I just got happy in my spirit. But we're going to pivot a little bit. COVID, right? COVID-19, yeah. mm -hmm. everybody is dealing with it. It is something that has affected the entire world. Um, but I want to do a deeper dive. We want to do a deeper dive into how do you feel that that has affected race, class, economics? Mm -hmm. um, what, what is your take on how COVID has affected all those, those subjects? Well, it has blown the lid off the mythologies of a mm -hmm. society where, you know, people are all uh, in the positions of, you know, equal access, um, equal life chances. Uh, it was never true to begin with, but mm -hmm. the, the abject reality of COVID's impact on our entire society mm -hmm. demonstrated that people at the lowest end of our society, people we call essential workers now, mm -hmm. were the most vulnerable to the disease and yet uh, the least protected mm. by the privileges of everything from living in low density uh, housing as in single family units and suburbs or farms. Uh, these were people who were required to take public transportation at a time when the yeah. federal government and state authorities were saying stay at home mm -hmm. and yet somebody had to make sure that the chicken from the farms, got processed in the plants, got put on a truck, a yeah. truck driven to a depot center, a depot center delivering to a grocery store and someone at the checkout line, making sure that you could get it. And so we live now um, with a post Floyd and now a pandemic moment of an inflection point that requires yet again, uh, candidness, uh, courage and honesty to face the facts uh, that imperil our society. Mm -hmm. And while a notion like interdependence seems quaint and abstract, uh, it really is, as Dr. King once said, uh, a single garment of destiny yep. mm -hmm. um, is truly the case. We yeah. will literally figure out how to live together or we will perish together. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I teach my students constantly uh, is that if you want to understand the health of America, and I don't mean that literally in terms of healthcare. Mm -hmm. If you want to take the temperature, um, a progress report, then you need to look explicitly, and I'm talking about mostly white students who is who mm. I teach generally. Um, you need to look explicitly at how black people are doing. Mm. Wow. Be mm. <laughs> because uh, as Lonnie Guineer, the great uh, legal mind and uh, early 
uh, proponent of critical race theory, has written extensively, Black people are the canaries in the coal mine uh, of this nation and to a degree of the world. And so the COVID-19 pandemic and the devastating toll it has taken on our communities and other low-income communities of color mm -hmm. uh, is the evidence of the structural inequalities that are compounded in every possible way in our society. Uh, and yet it is the opportunity that we have to make a difference in this time. Mm -hmm. I will also say that you know, the vaccine um, has revealed both the deep way in which history continues to shape our lives in wow. terms of the mistrust of the scientific community. I think it's, it, it is similar, I should say, there is a similar problem in pockets of white America, significant pockets of white America, but the origins of, those of that problem is different. Mm. For black people, it is born out of a mistrust of a medical establishment that has never privileged black lives, uh, simply as raw material for medical experimentation on one hand mm. and continued discrimination in clinical practice and misdiagnosing, ignoring uh, and treating black people as if they are superhuman and that their pain problems are make-believe or cover for drug addiction. Mm. Uh, and on the other hand, when we look at parts of rural America, um, this is an age old kind of neo-Confederate response to yep to government mandates. Right, and so these right. people are willing to kill themselves and their communities just mm -hmm. so that they can get government out of their lives. Mm -hmm. it's a, it's, it is pretty remarkable, the, the, the sum impact mm -hmm. of how much of the DNA of the nation turning on these big questions about where do black people fit in the social hierarchy of, of America are showing up in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. Wow. wow. So much to unpack. Yeah. So much to unpack. Yeah, and I, I think that um, even just just leaning in uh, even further into the penal system, mm -hmm. uh, specifically, um, which you've done a tremendous amount of work in talking about and writing about, especially in America, we have had one of the worst penal systems yeah. uh, in the world. Uh, and especially when it comes to targeting black communities, over almost 41% of the current uh, representatives that, that are incarcerated right now of the black community so for, for you, what, what do you feel are, are steps that need to be taken in terms of reforming the criminal justice system and making it where it's just, it's more equitable, but also um, so that it's not targeting black and brown communities in the same way that it has been? Mm -hmm. Well, this is a big question. Uh, the first thing I'd say is we just simply need to downsize the system entirely. Uh, if we could shrink it to a level that would take us back to the size of it in the 1970s, that would be progress. Um, but that wouldn't necessarily solve for the racial disparities that were true in the 1970s when the system, you know, it's at least statistically incarcerated about 150 per 100,000 Americans. Um, at its height uh, in the last 10 years, it, it was about 700 per 150,000. The interesting thing about the disparities is Black people have remained roughly three times overrepresented throughout history. I wrote a book called The Condemnation of Blackness, and the very first census, 25 years after the end of slavery uh, in 1990, was kind of an opening moment for this national discussion about Black-on-Black -black violence and criminality, the same kind of stereotypes 
that animate discussions today and which so many young people, millennials and Gen Zers have been fighting about in the struggle for racial justice. And at the time, about 30% of the nation's prisoners were black, black people were 13% of the population. And as you say today, the number hovers in the high 30s, low 40s, and black people are still 13% of the population. Mm -hmm. So statistically, the disproportion has been consistent over 130 years. So this isn't just about mass incarceration. This is about the fundamental structure of American society of which the criminal justice system has been a primary instrument of racial control. Yeah. And so we can't look to policing or prison to solve problems of inequality, of concentrated, concentrated poverty, of systemic racism. Uh, the, the criminal justice system is never gonna save black people. Mm. And indeed the system as it was true in the, the days of convict leasing and chain gangs and lynch mobs, as is true in the days of systemic police brutality, uh, there's no there's no way that black people are going to benefit at scale with a system that itself distributes violence. Yeah, literally. And what we know, epidemiologists teach this all the time. I'm part of an organization called Cure Violence Global. Some of your listeners may have seen okay. the movie Violence Interrupters, which is about this organization that started in Chicago, first named Ceasefire, now it's called Cure Violence. Mm -hmm. And what it essentially does is it puts community uh, in charge of public safety. A lot of the people who, who do that work are themselves formally justice involved, and they become credible, credible messengers to do conflict resolution, to basically give people an opportunity to talk through their differences before retaliatory violence works. But the thing about this whole approach is that violence is itself contagious. Mm. People who are exposed to violence, whether they're child abuse survivors or sexual abuse survivors, or people who uh, witness community violence are more prone to commit acts of violence. Well, violence also comes in the form of state violence. So when police officers, are uh, disrespectful to people when they are engaged in this kind of low-grade form of brutality where they throw people up against cars or they manhandle people or they beat up people, all of which happens mm -hmm. at far greater scale than the actual killing of unarmed Black people. Yeah. They are a source of violence in the community, which means they are producing a toxic presence in the community. So my point is, in a perfect world, could we call upon uh, some unit of government to come and help solve problems when people are engaging in harmful behavior? In a perfect world, yes. But that world's not likely to ever exist in the United States where Black people are concerned. Yeah. So when answering the question, we have to resort to new systems like the public health sector mm -hmm. to be the primary instrument for dealing with harm and reducing that harm in the community. Mm -hmm. And of course, we've heard a lot about this, but I think a lot of people sort of hear it and then they say, hmm, well, that sounds like a big idea and somebody just got shot in my neighborhood last night. Yeah. So we need better policing. Right. And it's just, we're not gonna get there. We're just not gonna get there. So we do need to take a pause focus on public health interventions, build the infrastructure required to make that work possible, empower the community to care for itself at, at scale. Um, th there aren't enough dollars right now going to this kind of intervention, mm -hmm. there needs to be, and this is it. We also have to roll back all of the mandatory minimum laws that were part of a uh, anti-black backlash mm -hmm. that started in the 1970s with law and order, mm -hmm. politics of war on crime and war on drugs. We still live with the legacy of all of that tough on crime policy. And so if we want fewer people in cages, 
we have mm -hmm. to put fewer people in cages. <laughs> if we want a smaller criminal justice footprint in terms of incarceration, we have to make sure that if people do end up in cages, that they stay there for far less time. One of the episodes of our new podcast is an episode that looks at how punishment happens in white European countries like mm -hmm. Finland and Germany, where they experienced a rise in violent crime in the 1980s and early 1990s, and yet their incarceration rate stayed flat. And the reason their incarceration stayed flat, whereas ours ballooned, mm -hmm. is because they made a commitment to not using incarceration as the primary focus of dealing with people who were willing to engage in violence at that scale. Mm -hmm. And so the episode is wonderful because you, you actually learn in tangible ways exactly what does punishment look like when human dignity is fundamentally centered, when corrections officers go yeah. through six months worth of training and still might not get the job if they can't demonstrate the yeah. skills required. Whereas in our society, yeah. people get two or three weeks of onboarding. They're already undereducated and already subject to racist educational systems that teach mm -hmm. white supremacy you know, in one form or another. So we have so many opportunities to get this right if we start with getting outside of our own bubble that we can fix it with the same old same old we've got to look to other places as i've just mentioned and we've got to decide that incarceration cannot solve the problem of the racist and economic inequality racist systems and the economic inequality that creates the conditions of violence in the first place mm. wow. yeah i mean that's excellent Khalil, and i think that yeah. Honestly, I think in the last several years, we we have just been exposing mm -hmm. the level of infrastructural damage uh, mm -hmm. that white supremacy has created across the spectrum when it comes to policing, yeah. when it comes to economics, politics. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, we have the example of January 6th this year with the insurrection yeah. and everything else that's happened. Mm -hmm. And what what is it do you think that we this country needs to revitalize is conscientious approach to human dignity as the primary force that drives us to love our neighbors or to serve our neighbors or to create infrastructures that are built and designed for their benefit and not again to do this violence to them to their bodies to their minds and to their souls yeah. and especially when it comes to black and brown communities like how do we even move the country back in that direction or really to that direction for the first time yeah 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 it's a great it's a great question i spent a lot of time thinking about this so much so uh, that uh, I had to pivot in the, in the past uh, two years to think very differently about how to solve for this problem. Okay. And let me say this, this is not just a shameless um, plug for your podcast and the way that it's built around the legacy of Dr. King. Um, I was actually teaching, where do we go from here the past several years? Uh, because at some point, um, I, and I can't remember the exact moment when I decided, you know, I need to really look closely at this final book by Dr. King yeah. and what he was thinking about. And the thing that struck me was chapter three, okay. the white backlash. Yep. I think mm -hmm. it's called racism and the white backlash. Mm -hmm. And he, he recast this story about American history. And I'm gonna paraphrase here, but he essentially opens it by saying, America has never been unified in its commitment to justice for the Afro-American. Right. Mm -hmm. It has always had a schizophrenic relationship. It has loved and hated the Negro simultaneously. And today, in the wake of the success of the civil rights movement, we now need to focus not on fixing Black people mm -hmm. uh, somehow to uh, participate and assimilate into a, this society, mm -hmm. 
this is really a white person's problem. Exactly. They created the problem and they need to fix it. And this is not the Dr. King that gets celebrated annually. Yeah. This is not the Dr. King that the Republican Party is often uh, trumpeting as the messenger of colorblind universalism with his I have a dream speech. This is a Dr. King, as you well know, your own uncle, who uh, is incredibly frustrated by the pace of change. And part of that frustration grows out of, as, we, as you mentioned earlier, the Chicago Freedom Movement, where he famously said the kind of virulent racism that he witnessed firsthand and that he was targeted by uh, not too far from where I grew up in Marquette Park on the south side of Chicago uh, was more dangerous, more hateful than what he'd seen on the streets of Jackson, Mississippi mm -hmm. and Birmingham, Alabama. Right. And so when you when you put all that together, um, there's one other lesson that Dr. King uh, said in an earlier book, Why We Can't Wait. He opens that book by talking about two children, one growing up in Birmingham, one growing up, I think, in Harlem or Northern City. I can't remember at, at this moment which it is. And he basically says that, that these children are being victimized by the fact that their textbooks are promoting what he calls the anachronistic doctrine of white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And the Negro sense of, of worthlessness, right. because these textbooks don't include the history of Black people's contribution to civilization and to America. Yeah. So when I look at Dr. King talking about a white backlash after the civil rights movement, and then I look at him talking about the power of history to socialize people, my solution to your question is not a policy solution. It's not simply about what we do in the criminal justice system or what we do about housing or what we do about education or the predatory practices or the financial sector. It's what do we teach our kids mm. at the right. earliest age about what it means to live in a society with a social compact that centers human dignity for everybody. Yeah. And the only way to get to that is to fix what our, our schools teach everybody. If we want a healthy society uh, where people actually care about the well-being of others and not as a way of maximizing profit or gaining some psychological benefit of being white, even if you're losing your own teeth to a methamphetamine uh, crisis or you don't have health care because you voted for a governor who doesn't believe they should expand Medicaid. If mm -hmm. we want to build healthier citizens, if we want to make better people, then we need to do that at the earliest possible ages. Mm -hmm. And we need to focus on what I call universal bias education. Okay. Because if, any, if I've learned anything in being a historian over the past 25 years, mm -hmm. it is that our history lessons are themselves fuel for the racism and structural disadvantages and the economic hyper inequality that is grinding everybody except a small number of people. Mm. Right, and so right. for me, universal bias education is not about uh, splitting kids up into affinity groups and teaching the white kids this and the black kids this. It is about teaching kids that bias is intrinsic to human mm -hmm. beings. Human beings will find ways to segregate themselves into communities. And in the United States, sitting with that human nature on top of a racist society whose cultural cues and the air we breathe are toxic with notions of black inferiority and white supremacy as it is, we have doomed children, no matter how much we love on them and how much we protect their innocence mm -hmm. to reproduce this behavior from the beginning. Mm -hmm. For 20 years, people have thought that uh, racism will simply age out with a mm -hmm. dying population. No. 
But I don't know about you down there. When I looked up last in the midst of the Trump administration, when I watched the Tiki Torch mob show up in Charlottesville, Virginia, and when I looked at the videos on January 6th, I saw a whole lot of 20-somethings mm-hmm. engaged in racist behavior. So mm-hmm. it is not going to go away just because some cranky, racist, old white people die out because mm-hmm. they are seeding new generations. And the backlash against critical race theory is precisely a backlash because that's where the action is. Mm. The action is actually in changing how we teach these history lessons, how we teach children to respect each other regardless of what they look like. And it's not gonna happen by teaching kids to be colorblind. It's gonna happen by saying, look, we live in a society where this is the history and we have to be mindful that you can't, as a kid, see difference as a reason for making Uh, judgments about what people are capable of. So that's my answer. Universal bias education in every school in America. Look, I I don't know what your, uh, if you were listening, I don't don't know what your religious background is, but I almost stood up and said something. I almost stood up and said something. Wow. Go off. Absolutely. But I I love what you said, because I want to tie it back to just trust. That's what it boils down to. It has just been a mistrust. Um, and the mm-hmm. way that we get back to it is just like you said, we have to rebuild it from, from the get-go, from mm-hmm. the womb, mm-hmm. um, and, and perpetuate this, this system, um, or, or not perpetuate this system mm-hmm. um, that has been taught to all of us, even innately in me, right? Mm-hmm. Growing up in this family, um, it, it's not like I'm absent from it. I still see it. Um, There's still some biases that I have that I have to work through and uncover. But what is the first step of King and Nonviolence? Information gathering. Right? We have to get the information. We have to understand Mm -hmm. what is coming, where this is coming from. Why is it coming from? Because that's going to, that's going to tell us what to do with the rest of everything else that's going on in the world. So thank you for that. That was, I mean, it's so much to unpack. It's so much to talk about. Um, but we got to move on because yeah. <laughs> we want to get into your podcast. Mm-hmm. We yeah. want, I know you've touched on it a little bit um, in terms of the prison systems and how um, other um, countries are dealing with um, how to how to deal with problems. Mm-hmm. Um, but talk a little bit about your podcast and, and um, promote promote that. Yeah, all right. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Well, listen, I'm, I'm happy for you guys and, and your new show. And I love your energy. And I really appreciate you helping to bring more awareness to a younger generation of Dr. King. You know, we take it for granted that people really understand that work and the context in which he and Coretta did so much and how Coretta picked up that work and advanced it even after his his murder. Um, So I just want to acknowledge that as well. But listen, today's a great day. Uh, Well, I don't know when the show will air, but you know, (laughs) on on the day of of this recording, um, I'm happy to say that um, my best friend and I, have launched a podcast called Some of My Best Friends Are, dot, dot, dot. (laughs) It is a show um, born of our relationship. He and I met, his name is Ben Austin. He's a writer. Uh, He's published a book about uh, the most famous uh, public housing project uh, in in America, Cabrini Green, which uh, for anybody uh, who has watched uh, TV land for younger listeners, they know good times. Um, (laughs) Or if you've seen the new, uh, Jordan Pill um, uh, and Nia DaCosta film, the remake of Candyman. Um, it is Cabrini Green that is the site of the, the horror film. Uh, he's written about everything from 
NASCAR and racism and Serena Williams for the New York Times Magazine. Wow. But more than anything, this is my boy, um, Jewish kid who uh, I met when I was 14. We, uh, we met as freshmen in high school. We uh, played tennis together, which was both our, 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 our um, junior sport. We worked together, bagging groceries at a local um, grocery store, um, selling computers when computers were a new thing uh, starting in 1984. Uh, and this podcast takes our friendship as a cautionary note that just being in relationship with someone of another background is not enough to fix mm -hmm. this society. Say that. And as much as it is necessary, it is insufficient. Yeah. Because uh, for us, too many times we've borne witness directly to people literally saying, if we could all just get along, mm -hmm. um, everything would be fine. But it's not going to be okay. Mm -hmm. Because the, the, the scale of the problems that we face make it difficult for individuals and even in community across the quote unquote color line to solve for these problems. So this show takes that as its kind of um, conceit, uh, as kind of the organizing principle. And then we take on everything. We talk about um, our opening episode is about interracial buddy films. We, we focus on two films, 48 Hours and Lethal Weapon. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, some of your listeners probably haven't seen these films, um, but they've seen the spinoffs, like the Lethal Weapon TV show with Damon Wayans, for example. Um, it's incredible because there's so much in those films that came out in 1982 and 1987 that speak directly to how the country was thinking it was post-racial 30 years ago. Right, yeah, right, right. And to a degree, the, the notion of it being post-racial was to make fun of and to mock the racism of these characters in this film. Mm -hmm. um, and so we, we chop it up without giving too much away. Uh, Eddie Murphy is the lead character in 48 Hours. Uh, alongside Nick Nolte, Danny Glover, um, co-stars alongside Mel Gibson. And uh, there's way more in these films, including commentary on racist policing uh, that people need to see. We also call these black savior films, yep. which is to be contrasted with white savior films. Mm -hmm. We've got a show that looks at um, incarceration, as I already mentioned, in Europe and really unpacks very different experiences and then asks a really big question at the end, is that even possible? Is it possible what happens in those other places when we're talking about Europeans, about white people, and to some degree foreign born who are North African and Eastern um, European in those countries, that's what their black population looks like. Is it even possible in the United States uh, with so much systemic racism as a core feature of our society to achieve what they have done? And then finally, uh, just to mention a couple more episodes in the season, we, we read Michelle Obama's memoir, mm. Becoming and Barack Obama's A Promised Land. Uh, we try to do the work for our listeners uh, okay. since a lot of folks, this is like 1500 pages worth of reading. Uh, and we talk about how do they tell stories about race and racism? What can we learn from them about how to talk about these issues? So that's a... Uh, several episodes for the season. We're super excited about it. And it's on Pushkin. Um, you can pick it up on podcast on um, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or yeah. iHeartRadio, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. Well, mm -hmm. I, I just have something to take up, Khalil, because <laughs> I've been told that as long as my cousin's friend's boyfriend's best friend is a person okay. of color, that should solve all the racial right. issues, right? I mean, right. Like, that's the solution. <laughs> Surround yourself. 
So exactly. <laughs> this this is what I, I I've heard. I've heard a birdie a birdie share with me that you had some insights on the new Candyman with Jordan Peele. Yeah. And I don't I don't want you to give too much away because I know you got you know some things you're working on with that. But mm-hmm. can you give us even some insight on on what you thought about this new Candyman that's coming out? Oh man, yeah, yeah. I won't tell. I mean, probably there's a few spoilers in our conversation, uh, and of course the film's already out, so people are, are seeing it. But I will say this. If the first Candyman was a commentary on how Black people in the community were hurting each other. And if you remember for the 1992 Candyman, it starts with this story of a Black woman who's killed in her uh, public housing apartment in Cabrini Green because the medicine cabinet um, is not secure and someone can literally push it um, from another apartment and come into your apartment. And so uh, it's based on a real story that happens um, uh, to this woman uh, named Ruthie. I can't remember her last name. In the reboot, Nia DaCosta and Jordan Pill, they invert the story. They don't make the story of Candyman as a kind of monstrous figure that is representative of the violence in the Black community where Black people are killing each other this version is a Black Lives Matter film. Mm. And it's very much about the structural forces in society, including policing, that is the source of violence in the community. And a very powerful uh, remake, the the mantra of of say her name is um, appropriated in this film to say his name um, as a way of thinking about the five times that you say Candyman. I'm only going to say it once, right? Uh, but, (laughs) (laughs) but, but if you think about say his name and the name of the movie, you'll get a sense of, of how this film itself is, uh, is trying to speak to a new generation. Wow. Yeah. Well, Yeah, Khalil, I mean, just just even for our last question, this this conversation has been excellent. I mean, honestly, I wish we could go all day. We could do a whole series just even on this for for you personally and in your personal work and your personal formation. How do you feel that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Mrs. Coretta Scott King have most impacted your life as a man, as someone who is an educator, as someone who does the work? How have those two impacted you as a human being most? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I've already mentioned a few um, notes in terms of the intellectual learning, literally reading the work um, and taking lessons from that work. But I think the other lesson that uh, has been modeled for me is that I can't walk this journey, uh, whether it's a justice journey or it's all my own personal transformation, whether it's a commitment to my own family and community mm-hmm. without being inspired by the example that they've set. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are so many people whose, whose lives were literally sacrificed um, to push our struggle forward. And I think that each generation has its own cross to bear. I'm not one of these people who thinks that because they did it, our lives are easier. Mm. I think that would miss the message of Dr. King's uh, final word and where do we go from here? Uh, The work wasn't over and he was concerned that there would be new forms of racism as as a kind of cancer that metastasized. In fact, uh, in that book, he uses the analogy of racism as a kind of cancer. And, uh, 
and cancer, just like the COVID-19 uh, virus mutates. Um, it moves, it shapeshifts. And so because uh, Dr. Coretta Scott King continued that work alongside people like Rosa Parks, who went on to live beyond the 1960s, we kind of put them in this like yeah. bubble and say, you know, they everything they did ended in 1965 or 1955 in the case of Rosa Parks, but it's not true. And so in their ongoing struggle for Dr. Coretta Scott King, as well as for Rosa Parks and so, so many others, I have taken the note that the struggle is ongoing. Mm -hmm. You know, history is not a story of a, a beginning, middle and end. It's a historical process. And that if we take that seriously, we will equip ourselves and we'll equip our children to have uh, sharper tools and better skills to be able to diagnose their conditions in the present and not simply to accept this message, which oftentimes you hear in our own churches, in our own schools, in our own communities, like people who had once been slaves had it twice as hard as you do. You have no excuse. People who were sharecroppers in the fields, red clay of Georgia, worked much harder and whose lives are more precarious. You have no excuse. But the truth is that for our, our young people, they face a new variant yeah. of racism. Yeah. Yeah. There was no um, massive criminal justice system on the scale that it exists today for people coming of age in the 1940s. And a, re a big reason why, that might be counterintuitive to people, the big reason why is because the point of the system was terror and coercion, not incarceration. Yeah. Yeah. They needed yeah. black bodies working yeah. in fields, not, yeah. not simply being disappeared or warehoused in a cage. And so because the job scene has changed, because agriculture has changed, because industry has moved south and then to Asia, and by South, I mean to, to Central America, right. there's less need for black labor as there once was. Mm. And therefore they built as many cages to contain us as possible. So we have to respect the struggle that our young people face. We have to equip them with history and insight, with legacies to model, um, to have the diagnostic capacity uh, yeah. to see what's in front of them, and then to empower them to come up with the creative solutions necessary to overcome these things. Wow. wow. So, so what you said is literally the words mm -hmm. of my uncle Reddin. She said, freedom is a never ending, uh, I'm sorry, freedom is a never ending struggle. Mm -hmm. or what is yeah, freedom is a never ending struggle. struggle. It must be earned each and every generation. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. I yep, had it there, there it in is. my brain. <laughs> you earn it and win it through every generation. Yeah. Yep. Um, and that's exactly what you're saying. We can't discredit, you know, what our ancestors went through. But we also can't discredit what we're going through now, right? Yeah. All that's of that right. had to happen in order to equip us uh, to get to where we have come. Mm -hmm. um, and we're not going to discredit the prog the progress because there has been progress, yeah. but it doesn't mean that it's over. Um, so right. I appreciate you so much for acknowledging that fact because sometimes people often yeah. forget, you know, they, they do say, you got it easy. Your, yeah, your, right. your, grandpa your, your great grandparents right. were slaves yeah. or, right. or think about the sharecroppers and yeah. things like right. that. Like you weren't standing, you couldn't stand in all this blazing heat. Well, you, yep. you couldn't, you couldn't stand in a lot of things I was going through mm -hmm. and I am right. going through, mm -hmm. um, yeah. but I had to go through this. You had to go through in order for the next generation to be able to benefit yeah. from every other generation. So thank you for acknowledging. That's right. That. Yeah. Yeah, so absolutely. Yeah, this has been an amazing episode. You know, this is what we like to do with the Rethink Podcast. We want to have critical <laughs> conversations that matter, that are meaningful. Uh, uh, Khalil, this has been excellent. This has been a true gift. Uh, again, not even just for the listeners, but I think for us as well. So we just want to say thank you for taking the time out. Uh, obviously, you have a lot going on. Uh, please, you know, make sure that you're subscribing to the podcast as well. You know, go find all podcasts are available. 
also find his book, you know, continue to invest in other things that he's been doing, because yeah. again, that, that's a gift that that keeps on giving. So thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. It's, it's been a real joy to meet both of you. So rethink and some of my best friends are subscribe now. How about that? <laughs> thank you. Wait, wait, I got it. Struggle is a never ending process. Freedom is never really won. You mm. earn it and win it through every generation. Mm -hmm. there you All go. right. There, there it is. There, there it go. is. There you go. That's right. All right, y'all. Thank you so much. Wonderful to meet you both. We will see y'all next time. Thank you.